This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, how Railsbank co-founder Nigel Verdon survived the perfect storm before sailing on to found three fintechs. So we all got on deck uh, to uh, find these massive thirty-foot like swells uh, around the boat, huge, huge, biggest sea I've ever seen in my life. And uh, and then the captain just orders us to get the damn sails down. It's not like on a yacht where they just collapse. You've actually got to go out into the rigging. And uh, and uh, go and take the cells down. Did did that and uh, was out there and the the bow spit becomes right way out over the sea, so you're going up and down 30, 60 feet. Uh, and we uh, Dave Hyatt, the first mate, and I both got to clip on. So it's all out there with no harnesses or anything else like that, uh, getting the cells down because we knew that the next day, if the if the cells shred, we'd be stitching the damn things. Nigel Verdon, co-founder and CEO of Railsbank. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. No, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, great to great to be invited, and uh, thank you again. Uh, so, you're a, a banking as a service platform. Uh, what exactly does that mean in practice? That means in practice, uh, we're a platform that enables uh, any fintech or brand uh, to launch financial products, uh, whether they're a would that be a sort of banking type product, would it be wealth management products, would it be payment products, uh, whether it be uh, uh, rewards type products. And uh, so banking services is a bit sort of a, a catch-all. I'd say we're more a, a financial uh, embedded finance uh, platform that enables anybody to embed finance, financial services into their customer existing customer journeys, uh, not white label or anything, but deeply embedded. Right. So whether it's whether you're a bank or a fintech or maybe just a normal tech company that wants to incorporate certain financial abilities into their platform, they can come to you and, and you can help them out. Although we, we don't sell to banks, uh, we, uh, we, we the banks, uh, some of them partner with us at the back end, uh, but uh, we don't actually sell to banks. It's primarily brands and fintech. So uh, people in, in like retail, fast moving to consumer goods, uh, travel. And then the, the normal uh, fintechs that you see from time to time. Uh, we do work with neo banks, uh, but not uh, not the traditional banks. Okay, so so if I wanted to set up the Bank of Elliot, um, and I said, you know, hey Nigel, I want to create my own neo bank. Um, how easy would that be for me to launch uh, on your platform? What would I need to do, and how much would I have to pay you? How would it work? So it's super easy to launch. You could prototype now uh, using one of our sandboxes uh, with real money. And so, and you could do that without even talking to us. Uh, there's APIs up there, there's documentation, and you can uh, you can create a number of accounts. I think it's about 20 accounts. And you can do payments up to five euros, so you can create the full experience uh, of of uh, a neobank uh, within literally a week prototyping. If you've got some developers who can prototype and launch it, generally in six to six to eight weeks. The fastest we've got to market. 
uh, was lightningaid.org during COVID, which was eight days from the idea to the Apple App Store, live in the Apple App Store, a full neobank with a debit card in its, uh, its brand. So that was it. They, they got together, had an idea, let's do this. They came to you eight days later, they launched on the App Store, and they're, they're getting clients. Correct. And that, that was rather intense eight days. Uh, <laughs> if you looked at the hours worked, it was more like a normal uh, sort of like, uh, I'd say, two to three weeks of actual work, but it was in condensed into eight days. And I assume, obviously, they had to work on their own branding and promotion and everything else in order to kind of, you know, because obviously you can create something. I'm sure there are lots of easy ways to get things on the App Store and no one will ever find them unless, you know, you kind of help them on their way. The branding started about to be done, but you've got places like Fiverr. You can outsource tons of this. And this this was basically something to help people, a certain demographic, uh, to during COVID when they were in lockdown, like uh, vulnerable people who needed to be able to give somebody money to do shopping for them, for example, but didn't want to trust just giving cash. Uh, so it was a sort of like a neobank that helped people uh, give funds and charities give funds to, uh, to uh, vulnerable people so people do shopping and other things on their behalf uh, during lockdown. Wow. And, and they had a, I know it's not your company, but, but I mean, they had a, a good launch. They, they, they achieved like a, a decent number of customers in order to make them viable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's now uh, it's another charity buying it over and taking on. Part of it, we put some of our own time into it. We, well, my co-founder put a lot of his time. So it's, it's done in partnership with, uh, with a, a third party as well. Now it's going to, and it actually helped the music industry too. There was a, an issue where, because all the roadies are self-employed and the government worked at the time didn't, uh, didn't pay uh, self-employed people because they could prove certain things. Uh, they, they, a couple of well-known individuals in the music industry uh, approached us, uh, well, I've known one of them for many, many years, and uh, set up a platform where they put their personal money in uh, so roadies could be paid uh, through, through this platform as well, and they could spend on certain things. And then when government came later on, they could claim back uh, the funds from, from government. So it's a, a social enterprise more than anything. And it's going to hopefully go into uh, one of our colleagues. Uh, she, she's actually left her business now and she set up her own social impact business. And uh, we're likely to donate the platform uh, and the only pieces that we still own intellectual property to, to, to that. Okay, well, I know that music is something that's close to your heart, so we'll come back to that later on in our conversation. But uh, I assume the last 12 to 18 months, I mean, you just gave us one example of uh, one client that you helped uh, during the pandemic. Presumably the past 12 to 18 months must have been Pretty, pretty good period for you guys. Yeah, we've grown the past eighteen months from literally ninety-seven people to four hundred and twenty people. So it's been, I think, the sort of shift to digital uh, and digital product, digital processes uh, was and compared to the sort of what we call old finance or uh, world where everything is still fairly analog, where, where generally a process has become a PDF. But that's not digital. It's just making the uh, process digitized as opposed to digital. So th- th- it's really shown over these past 18 months, business models uh, that are pure digital are taking over much, much faster than traditional uh, financial services business models. And they've got a huge amount of traction because of that, in launching new ones within it. So it's been, it's been quite a roller coaster over the past 18 months with lockdown growing at, at, a, at a huge rate in the company. And uh, also we acquired Wirecard at the time, and we had Brexit. <laughs> so, 
everything was uh, a very tired team are just just about recovering now uh, halfway through 2021. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I think in this period you also raised, I think, $37 million and you bought Wirecard's UK assets. What was the rationale behind that purchase? Uh, One of the reasons was uh, Wirecard going bust did not help the fintech industry full stop, trust-wise. So that didn't help a lot of our customers and also the industry in general. So it was one, two, to help the industry. Number two is uh, there's a ton of good people in Wirecard that uh, that the skills that we needed in, in, in Rails Bank. So uh, there was a number of people, and number three, there was clients uh, as well. Sometimes we, we know very, very well from previous uh, previous lives and other new ones that we brought on board. So the economics worked. And the the publicity was superb. Uh, I think uh, the, I could have uh, probably spent the same amount we paid uh, for Wirecard on PR and, and advertising and got less coverage. So it was good. So. Generally, those those are the four motivations on it. And I, I will say that, that people from Wirecard should still uh, stand proud because there were several thousand very good people at Wirecard let down by a few. So, uh, uh, and uh, to appeal to anybody else in the industry is just hire people from Wirecard. They're good people. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. And, and there were no concerns that, that there might still be some skeletons in the closet, like that some of the assets you bought might still have problems, legacy problems, or your, I guess your, your lawyers ensured that if there is a, are any issues, they won't come back to haunt you? No, we're, we're quite experienced in previous lives at M&A and how it can go right and wrong. And uh, one of the key things is we didn't actually buy the legal entity uh, where there was stuff in there. Uh, we bought just the assets, clients, and the people transferred over to us uh, under 2P, the, 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 the uh, UK regulation for transfer of staff. Of staff. So we, we, we minimise that risk by, by not buying the legal entity and not having to take any of the liability with that legal entity so we, we didn't need it. So it's just literally the assets, uh, which are a tiny bit of technology, uh, the customers that the contracts innovated over, and, and uh, a number of the team came over to us under 2 legislation. And any more acquisitions planned? Uh, we will be. Uh, and we've got our eyes on a few things and talking to a few things and be announced uh, over the next two to three months. Uh, because it's... Uh, uh, number one is we, we've got a great platform that customers have been migrated to. Uh, we've migrated Wirecard in, I think it was, three and a half, four weeks. Uh, so the team are used to uh, have that machine ready to, to, uh, to bring other... Businesses on board, and it's just learned from our, our days in sort of like 1990s, uh, etc., where we had a lot of uh, experience on mergers and acquisitions and, and lived through them in, uh, in previous lives. And Chipper on our board who actually led the, uh, the the transaction. He was responsible for eBay buying Skype. He, he led that transaction. Okay, well, let's hope that ultimately it uh, proves more uh, of a good acquisition than even than uh, uh, Skype proved for eBay. Uh, in terms of, you talked about, you know, your expansion in terms of headcount. I think you said, what, from like 90 people, was it to like more than 400? Uh, yeah. I can't remember. In terms of traction, in terms of customers, in terms of revenue growth, can you give us a, an indication of what you experienced? Sure. Uh, our revenue growth has been, uh, the past two years, over 100% per year, uh, which, is, which is good. Uh, the customers are now around 300 of customers, and uh, that's been growing. So the, the two are growing quite uh, uh, very nicely and, and steeply. And that's both in UK Europe, which is our main business. Southeast Asia has taken off and we're now got uh, revenue in there in Singapore and Australia. 
and uh, US launch, uh, we have customers signed up and they will be announced uh, uh, imminently as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned some of these uh, other markets that you're in because you're a pretty young fintech, although with the greatest of respect, you're probably not the youngest fintech founder that we've had on on the show. Uh, you've got an incredible geographic spread, including, I think, uh, part of the US, Singapore, Lithuania, Manila, Melbourne, uh, to name a few. Um, fintechs often go after one market to start with. Okay, let's let's conquer the EU, then maybe we'll think about the US, or we'll then we'll think about China, or whatever the case may be. So I'm just wondering how you've managed to gain such a, a geographic spread in such a, a short space of time and, and what's behind your approach in contrast perhaps to other um, banking as a service platforms or embedded finance uh, fintechs? Sure. I mean, consumer businesses, it makes sense to go one market at a time. Uh, B2B and infrastructure like AWS and others, uh, you tend to go multi-jurisdiction uh, because your customers are multi-jurisdiction and that's the, the drive for us is customers want to not only get into business fast, launch an idea fast, or prototype it fast, but our, our customer journey is prototype, launch, and scale. And they also wanted to scale across geographies, and especially when talking to larger brands who are present in different countries, they don't want to talk to three or four vendors, they want to talk to one. And so, and so some of the biggest tech companies in the world we've, we've had discussions with. So how, how do we do that? Uh, I, I was lucky enough, A, I think you need grey hair uh, to do it, uh, and understand the market. Check. <laughs> okay. My team have all got right here. Uh, we've been working together, our core team. I've founded three companies. One's on the FTSE 100 now uh, as part of BAE Systems. Second one was Currency Cloud. My core team have been uh, some of them been with me since our very first company, including my co-founder. So we're we, we used to executing stuff together, which, uh, which, is, which is good. And uh, a lot of us have been brought up all over the world, uh, and that really does matter uh, because uh, once you understand the market, you can understand how to develop your business in there. So I'm Irish, I'm born in Germany, I've brought up in Southeast Asia, I've lived pretty much all over the world, even as before I was even 18, 18 so father's in the military. And so experiencing those different cultures uh, helps understand how you build businesses. For example, uh, one US, large US company, I remember being in Singapore and not figuring out that Singapore is fundamentally different from Indonesia, Philippines, from Vietnam, uh, mainland China, Hong Kong, and everything. They're fundamentally different markets and, and religions and people and everything. And they haven't figured that out. Uh, we, to operate in Philippines and Indonesia, it's best to, to work in joint venture with one of the local families because they know their market extremely well rather than to go in blind and say, we're, we're here and, and announce yourselves. They're, they're more JV markets. And you look at uh, uh, WeWork. WeWork went direct in, in Western markets and joint ventured in, in emerging markets. That's the way we can develop emerging, emerging markets because they're fundamentally different with pitfalls. Uh, things can change radically. Uh, political power switches between places. Uh, and they're less stable in terms of... Uh, uh, sort of legal system and everything else on that, and you just you've got to work with local, have a local joint venture to figure out how to survive through that because they know how to do it. So you're in all of these uh, international markets. You've experienced tremendous growth, especially over the last twelve to eighteen months. 
what what's the actual business model when you know when I set up the Bank of Elia and I and I go using your platform, whether it takes me eight days or uh, or a couple of weeks, uh, do I pay you up front just for the service? Am I paying you a proportion of my revenues? How does it actually work? Uh, initially, there's a there's a setup fee, uh, which is just a, to it's a very nominal fee, uh, and then a subscription fee to whichever services you're using, which is our technology, our operations our banking capability, our card capability. And, and then uh, above subscriptions, uh, depending on your usage, uh, that starts to transactional fees on a per-transaction basis. So it's, it's very simple. Uh, one of the things we pride ourselves in the, the actual uh, pricing sheet is a piece of A4, uh, no more than that. And our competitors are generally about t- 10, 20 pages of unfathomable uh, sort of economics you've got to go through and have a, an accountant going through to figure out how much you're actually paying. We just try and make it very simple. We love that. I love that in, in Currency Cloud. Uh, I think Stripe did it when they first launched uh, acquiring at 2%. I think it was just, okay, that's what I've got to pay. Whether you're expensive or not, it's, it's a different matter. It's, it's super simple. And why is that important to customers? Some of our customers are startups, some are very well-established brands. Your startup, you've got to justify yourself to your investors. Therefore, you want simple economics to go into your planning, your business modeling yourself to show to your investors. And so, if, you, if we make our, our pricing super simple, they can then, it's a simple task for them to convince their investors. And it's only one pricing sheet, but then they have to integrate a bin sponsor, a card manufacturer, a processor, all that other stuff that's just turnkey and simple for them. And the same for larger brands is. Uh, they, they can prototype with us super fast. We don't try and put them into a three- to five-year contract like a lot of competitors do. We just say, if you sign up and pay as you go until you've prototyped, you've got data, and with super simple pricing that you can then take to your head of marketing or your head of product and say, here's our data with real customers. Uh, we've spent a small amount on us here. This is it. We can invest this. We can then grow this product uh, as well. So it's like all... Businesses, friction and digital, and removing friction and being digital is not just technology. It's to do with pricing. It's to do with how people operate and everything. A classic one is Amazon. It's, it has a hell of a lot of tech, but fundamentally logistics and a place and a marketplace, a logistics business and marketplace with good technology and good digital processes running it. And that's that's that will make the, the, the big difference is digital processes. And if they can still have people doing them. It's the mindset of removing friction. You, you mentioned how expanding internationally was second nature for you, given all of the countries you lived in, because of, I think you said your father was in the military. Uh, was, was some of that kind of military discipline, do you think, uh, kind of handed down to you, to, uh, enabling you to run, you know, this uh, so many, well, to have founded different companies and, and now to be... Uh, Heading up Rails Bank and expanding internationally, does it require military discipline? Is that something that's that's in the blood and that helps you manage um, such businesses? Well, my co-founder was a uh, commander in the lieutenant commander when he left the Royal Navy, uh, nuclear weapons officer. Uh, my head of operations uh, was uh, an officer in the Highlanders regiment, uh, and uh, I protected the Queen once uh, up in Balmoral, and, uh, and uh, kicked a corgi by mistake. <laughs> which is a thing one doesn't do. Uh, so it, uh, it's, it's a discipline thing, whether it's military or not. Uh, it's about understanding where you're going, setting direction, being super clear on it, uh, and focusing on what's important uh, rather than 
the next bulky thing that's coming on off. And, uh, and sometimes it's just you've got to keep refocusing people, reminding them where the focus is and where the direction is, and, uh, and let them get on with executing and, and delivering on it. Because if you give people direction, I find, and uh, it's, it's, again, it's a growing up thing. I've, uh, we've committed to all our teams now that as founders, we will not get involved in any process anymore. Uh, if you've hired smart people, they'll figure stuff out as long as you give them direction. So it's all about direction. And same in the military, you, you've got uh, different people understanding different parts of, uh, of the scenario that it's happening, operating under. And uh, you've got people giving direction and then people giving feedback. And you rely on your people to do the right thing at the moment in time uh, because they're right in the middle of uh, that process or that customer. And uh, if they've got the right direction, they, they can get on with it and make their own decisions. And I have to ask, when you kicked the Queen's Corgi, did was it an accident? Was it kind no, of just yapping too much? Operations, I think it was, a, it was an accident. He, said, he tells it was an accident. <laughs> okay, well, if, if uh, Her Majesty's listening, um, it was definitely an accident. So, Nigel, uh, your, your Twitter bio reads... 25 plus years in fintech, founded Evolution in 96 and Currency Cloud in 2007 and Railsbank 2016, sailor, guitar player, builder and kick-ass curry cook. Uh, where should we start? Which, uh, which of these kind of defines you best? I'm intrigued to know about the, the sailing, the guitar playing, uh, and unfortunately you're in a different country, so I can't experience your curry, so I'll take your word for it on that count. But tell, tell me a bit more about, uh, about the, uh, the founder, the co-founder and CEO of, uh, of Railsbank. Yeah, uh, the Kerry's, my father commanded one of the Gurkha regiments in, in the British Army. So I, I was brought up on Nepalese food uh, and eating it uh, at home as well. And uh, and also a ton of time when in, in Southeast Asia, it's, it's in army camps, and you, you ate the Nepalese food uh, a lot because it was every Sunday you had lunch there. Uh, the uh, sailing and, and guitar sort of related uh uh, I, I, uh, I screwed up my A-levels at school because I, I used to spend all my time playing guitar and playing rugby and not doing much uh, schooling. And because of that, uh, I, 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 uh, I actually failed my A-levels, so I wasn't going to university. So I then became, I've been sailing since I was three years old, uh, and again, various parts of the world, in the Baltic, South China Sea, the uh, Atlantic, the, the Channel, the Irish Sea, all, all over. And... Uh, I actually became a professional sailor on a tall ship uh, that sailed between Maine and uh, South Carolina. So it was a record of the first ship of the US Navy in Providence. The captain, there's another music link, captain, original captain of it, so I was called John Paul Jones, who was the first admiral of the US Navy in the 1676, when, when the Civil War was there. He was also the bassist of uh, Led Zeppelin, with John Paul Jones. So I <laughs> took John Paul Jones. Very different eras and very different jobs. So I, I worked there, uh, and I still do. I, I still do a ton of sailing as well. Uh, mountaineering is those are the things. A very outdoors person. But my father convinced me because uh, I phoned him after being at sea for three weeks, sort of three months, uh, uh, from Newport, Rhode Island, and he convinced me. Look, I'll, I'll pay for a tutor to help you retake your exams. And, uh, uh, and my father didn't go to university either. So he said, please just spend three years having fun, pass your exams, and then, then you can go back to sailing if you want. Uh, and things. But I, I did. I, I, I had an amazing tutor, a uh, Swedish guy called Brad Severson, who taught us the first principles of maths rather than teaching us how to pass exams. 
and uh, that was a, a great experience. He, he got me and three other guys uh, also who had, done, had similar backgrounds. They had uh, either played sport too much and didn't pay much attention to, to class. And he got all of us straight A's in our A level. So that, uh, it's telling what a teacher, influence as a real learning thing that teachers, the right teacher, can, can stimulate anybody. And uh, ended up at university, got two engineering degrees now, and uh, then uh, went and started life as an engineer. And uh, what ended up in, uh, in finance by mistake was uh, my best buddy, at, uh, one of the engineers at a place called EDS, was owned by General Motors. He phoned me up and said he's joining a place called Goldman Sachs. And uh, I'd never heard of these people. And I'd never heard of investment banking or trading or anything. I thought that he put a card in the wall, cash came out. That was the most advanced thing of banking. But he just saved the pay 20 times the money for the same maths. So I, I ended up in, uh, in, the, in the city myself as well. Wow. Uh, amazing uh, story. I want to come back to that in just a moment, uh, Nigel. So, so don't go away because I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. So, Nigel, we were just talking about uh, how you fell into finance uh, by mistake. I'm not sure if you uh, gave us the full lowdown on, on your guitar playing, though. Did, did you played in a band? Did you ever have ambitions of, uh, of, of emulating the uh, namesake of the uh, first U.S. Navy captain, uh, the bassist from Led Zeppelin? Yeah, sure. I played in bands all, all through my teens and uh, university as well. Uh, when I... But when I was 18, after I had my levels before I went sailing, I said to my father, I was going to be a professional musician. Uh, and he said to me, just don't tell your mother. I think it was his, his way of saying, uh, you're okay, but you're not as good as your buddies. Your buddies are really, really, really talented. And uh, so one of my friends, the guy I played with, a guy called Ben Pope, who was taught piano by a guy called John Ogden, who's the premier sort of classical pianist of the last century. Uh, he, uh, ben now conducts the Royal Philharmonic, the Royal Ballet, Belgian Philharmonic and everything. Another one, Johnny Pumphrey, is uh, now a well-renowned uh, session musician and uh, saxophone player. But it was, uh, so I have playing bands. I still sort of jam with friends of mine. We have uh, come over to the garden here and they get the, uh, the amps and guitars out. Both my daughters play and uh, they've I've keep with them a couple of times as well. So, yeah, it's been a big thing of life, music. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I, I collect the guitars, I build them, play them. And uh, it's a great thing to socialise with friends and go and see gigs and everything. And you, you've, you don't just, when you say you collect guitars, you've, you've got more than a couple, right? It's got around, uh, around 37 or so at the moment. Various things. Some, some are collectibles, some are just uh, old things that I had knocking around, some some are built, stuff I built myself, and others are. People have donated them because they decided they needed a good home. Uh, but, but in terms of your musical ambitions, uh, they kind of, when your father spoke to you and kind of said, go for it, but, you know, implying that you're not as good as your friends, that, that was when you realised that maybe a musical career wasn't for you or, you or you still kind of went down that route as, as far as you could until reality bit? Yeah, I didn't, didn't really go career-wise. I went down it more just uh, enjoyment-wise. Uh, enjoyed it as a as as a hobby type of thing, 
rather than the, the sort of stress of, of getting of working in it. Uh, friends, again, I've got a ton of friends who still work in the industry and they're very, very well-known uh, individuals. And it's uh, their, their story of uh, getting paid, uh, sort of like going from town to town when they're on tour and everything. It's, it's quite a brutal lifestyle uh, as well. And, uh, and if you make it, you can get some good money out of it. But a ton of them uh, were, were they didn't have recordings in various uh, charts and been near the top of some of the charts. They still aren't. Uh, uh, they, they're still. Uh, they're still artists. They still get paid like artists, which is a shame because of the uh, the entertainment they give to to so many people. And so, Nigel, you you've told us you, you fell into finance by mistake. I think you said you went to Goldman Sachs, or at least your your friend convinced you to go into banking because because uh, of the pay. At what point did you realise, you know, this is all good. I'm getting a good wage, but actually, you know, I want to set something up on my own. When was when did this realisation dawn on you? I went to Nomura uh, and then Swiss Bankor, which is today called, uh, called UBS. Uh, the, uh, my colleague went to, to, to Goldman. Uh, well, the internet uh, was a thing that changed everything in the mid-1990s. Uh, and the, uh, the, the team I was with in, in Swiss Bankor did the very first foreign exchange trades on the internet uh, between Swiss Bankor and Yiska Bank. And... Uh, that was a sort of within that team uh, we uh, we were thinking okay let's this is something interesting let's go and build a company that does this for other businesses too so we ended up with Swiss Bank or UBS as a client Goldman Sachs as a client Morgan Stanley Merrill Lynch and a lot of that market so we're like a um, a miniature Accenture uh, for uh, uh, for sort of transforming your front office and your trading in primarily in FX and equities over this thing called the internet. And uh, so we, we uh, my buddy from Goldman Sachs came and joined me and another friend from Goldman Sachs and uh, another friend from university. And uh, our CTO then was my co-founding CTO at Currency Cloud and the chief architect at Wells Bank. My co-founder was a part of that team and he, he worked for Evolution, uh, then worked for uh, PwC and then came back to, to work in uh, Wells Bank. Pete Buckney, our CTO in Wales Bank, was also a project manager in those days, uh, the same team. So there's a, there's a ton of us who uh, all went to that thing. It's, it's more, we, were just, we just thought, hey, uh, we, let's go build something rather than just be, uh, uh, we were quite sort of uh, entrepreneur-minded type, type individuals, the four of us who founded Evolution. And we both get, we're also the four of us again, a bit frustrated working uh, sort of a, a general day job. We wanted something that could fit around our lives as well, like selfishly, because two of us did tons of paragliding. Uh, one, one was a, a major cyclist as well, so, and the other one was another mountain, a sort of real mountains guy. So we wanted to do something that worked around our lives as well. And uh, so that's what we did. Uh, we took a, took a plunge. Uh, that business we wasn't funded or anything. We, we bootstrapped it as profitable year one. Uh, we won all sorts of awards, fastest growing companies in the UK, uh, entrepreneurs of the year. Uh, we were semi finalist in this thing. So it's a great company. This was Evolution. That this was your first startup, uh, and so you had a, and then you you sold that business. Yes, it's now part of BA Systems, uh, which is on the this one that acquired it in uh, two thousand and six. And then almost immediately you went and founded uh, Currency Cloud, which, uh, t- tell us about that. How did that go? What was the uh, idea there? 
Oh, the 2003, I, I, in 2003, I'd stepped down from the uh, from an operational role that I just stayed on the board of, of Evolution. I was actually then dragged into a bank, by an old friend of mine, for Swiss Bank Corp, to turn around the, help them turn around the equities business of Desmond Trimore. And in 2005, uh, we, we did that in 18 months, uh, from a 90 million loss to 120 million profit, uh, because of just stopping and doing stupid things, is the simplest answer. Um, then went to, uh, I then met a guy called Sean Park, if you know Antimus, it's one of the premier fintech funds, uh, the very first fintech funds. Uh, Sean uh, was running a business, uh, just started a, collecting together a business in Dresden Climate called Digital Markets, and uh, had a conversation with him and said, I can bring all the equity pieces in there, direct market access, the market making platform for retail market making, London Stock Exchange. And so we, we, we built that business over two years uh, and then Dresden fired us all, which is very public in, in the newspapers. Uh, and I think it's quite funny, uh, the, head, the head of fixed income, an Australian guy, the name escapes me now, uh, ex-JP Morgan, uh, he, he successfully sued them for being racist to an Australian. <laughs> and then he gave the money to charity uh, because uh, Dresden just got itself in a bit of a pickle and that's why Commerce Bank ended up buying them. But when, when, we, when we left, uh, uh, Sean set up Antimus. Uh, I put a tiny bit of money into that. Uh, I set up Currency Cloud because I was annoyed. At, I was living in France at the time. I needed to transfer money over from my sterling to my euros. And some, some company was trying to charge me 4%. And, and the bid offer on, on that was something like, uh, like two, or three, uh, two or three pips in those days. So it was nowhere near. It's like 4,000 times less. So I started looking at it, and then they sent me uh, an email uh, with a PDF to, to fill in by hand and then go and fax back to them with my payment instructions. Uh, the nearest fax was 10 miles away in, in the tobacco in the local village. So it was, I saw all this friction on it. So I got hold of my buddy, uh, Nick Borner from Evolution, and said, hey, w- w- why don't we sort of automate this uh, this uh, this foreign exchange market, like we did with the uh, in the in the capital markets, where everything was straight through processing. This is a really archaic market, and it's overpriced, and there's no price transparency, and they try to rip you off uh, and everything. So we, we started on that journey, and what we built was a, a essentially a retail and a corporate foreign exchange platform, which uh, was just before Transferwise launched. And when I met Transferwise guys uh, over the PowerPoint deck after introduced by Michael Jackson as a COO of Skype and, uh, and realized, oh, God, these guys know retail, we don't. Uh, and we switched pretty quickly into being a platform business, an API-led business. And that's when it really took off, is when, when, we, when we made that change from being direct to consumer and direct to SME. We sold the direct to consumer one to Infinity FX and uh, just concentrated on the API business. So it's, uh, that was the reason why I was basically annoyed at somebody overcharging me and seeing a market that was so inefficient and that annoyed me to fax something back to somebody. Right, so uh, was it David Banner t- turns green and turns into the Hulk, but if you annoy Nigel, he goes off and sets up a fintech and, <laughs> and simplifies the process. So I guess that's a good way of channeling your, your anger and annoyance. Um, so uh, you talked about some of the companies you founded, uh, Evolution, uh, Currency Cloud, obviously Rails Bank right now. Uh, 
they all seem to have done remarkably well. I'm just wondering, were there were there no failures uh, along the way? Nothing, no kind of setbacks that made you think maybe this wasn't for you or made you dust yourself off and dust yourself down and start off again? Uh, no, I invested in a private jet business years ago. And, and uh, me and all the other investors all lost money on that completely because uh, the lesson there was uh, only invest in something you understand. Uh, it was a business I just didn't understand. Uh, it was uh, a colleague... Uh, it looked good at the time, so uh, that was a wrong decision. So on reflection, I only only uh, do anything from an investment side within the fintech world because I, I know it deeply can help influence outcomes uh, from from investing. In it. So that that was a, a a sort of setback. On the same thing on on currency cloud, when we first started it, going direct to consumer and direct to uh, uh, direct to SME uh, was a real uh, eye opener of having to the dynamics of a direct consumer business when we just come from capital markets which is a institution to institution business and so we really didn't understand it so we figured out quite quickly trying to get a customer at a time was a really really difficult thing to do unless you had the skills to do that like transferwise and leverage uh, as successful companies and so the the, uh, the sort of the learning there was let's transform into what we know which is platform institution to institution and and uh, and make sure that we have a sort of a bus rail straight through processing, and that's what uh, founded on currency cloud. So it's learning. It's not everything's perfect on that. Uh, other ones on uh, just as general been on the way that uh, uh, customers only buy value propositions; they don't buy your features. Uh, is another one of how you market. You'll see Wells Bank is very much marketed on on value proposition of access global banking of five lines of code, uh, and rather than oh, you can make payments and things. And another learning was currency cloud is in the payment space and that's massively crowded, so very difficult to differentiate. Uh, whereas the, the word payments is banned in uh, Wells Bank, so we never get painted in that space. <laughs> so, when we talk to the media and everything, we, it's very clear that we, we're in a clear space. So the, the learning in currency cloud there was, uh, if you're in a crowded market, it's very difficult to get out of it unless you define a new category. Uh, and Wells Bank, we're very much about defining a new space of the market, whether it's bank as a service or credit finance, uh, of where we were, we, we were operating, we use language that's clear to that. And uh, position that well away from payments. We'd have, we do payments with like uh, even all banks to payments, but they're not called payments companies. And so that's uh, a big learning. It's about positioning, it's about value proposition, it's about knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at uh, as well. And I guess succeeding also requires you to roll with the punches and challenges that come your way, such as, for example, Brexit uh, in the UK. I think. If I'm not mistaken, Railsbank is still universally described as a London-based fintech. Uh, if you knew now, kind of what you knew then before the whole Brexit experience, would you still set up shop uh, with London as your HQ today? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the, the, the key thing is, I mean, London's very easy to operate from, but it's now a 60 million uh, person market. Uh, if you're total markets, but uh, again, you've got to say under 18s, you know, you, they discount those. Whereas Europe uh, uh, with the UK was a 720 million, so six, uh, 600 and, uh, 660 million uh, market. 
So we would most likely set up somewhere else in Europe uh, than, than London, although it's easier to operate in London than most other markets in Europe uh, for, for, for many, many reasons. Uh, London's also still got an advantage of the, the venture monies there, uh, the legal systems there, the lawyers are there, so the ecosystem that you've got Silicon Valley, uh, which is why it's successful coming to come out of Silicon Valley, it's all about the ecosystem, the skills and the people. And uh, in certain European countries, they just don't exist. Uh, Germany's good uh, as well. France has got a smaller ecosystem that's reasonably okay. Uh, but the other ones are just doesn't, doesn't exist at all. So it, it probably would have been London, but we would definitely considered other, other markets uh, to operate from. Uh, Ireland, where, where all my family's from, uh, we, we may have considered it, but when you look at Dublin, uh, Dublin and traffic and everything else like that, and talent, because you're trying to fight with Google, Facebook, and everybody else is over there, MasterCard and everything. Uh, it, uh, for, for startups, it's probably not the best environment because of the, the mass amounts of competition and living in Dublin uh, and driving around those apps of pain these days. It's the M25, but like friction-free and everything. And I think, Nigel, you've also written about changes in uh, capital gains tax as being something else that might reduce the UK's attractiveness uh, from from your perspective as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur. Sure. Uh, the UK have a great environment for stimulating startups and motivating founders and shareholders uh, on it. And pretty much the, the motivating investors are still there with the EMI and uh, SEIS, uh, sorry, SEIS and EIS schemes. But for founders, it's, uh, it's essentially a change of capital gains has become pretty persecutionary. Now, there's a lot of debate on that saying, oh, well, your founders uh, and all that type of thing. But just remember, when you start companies, you either take no salary or take minimal salaries uh, because that's the right thing to do. And, and your, your gain is when you sell your shares later on. But when uh, there's mooting of putting capital gains tax at the same rates as, a, as income tax, uh, you do think, well, as a founder, why should I be in the UK? I can leave the business there, but I may happen to live somewhere else, which is a, a, a better environment for for, for for founder to live in. So I think that that's something the UK government does need to, I think, reconsider their, their position of how to motivate people, uh, especially uh, to, to stay in the country. Uh, number two is uh, what the UK has is another advantage for what we're seeing in, in London is the, uh, the Department of Trade of Industry or the Department of Industry and Trade which is what they, they keep changing their name. They've got this massive international network and uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, Southeast Asia, they've been uh, Natalie Black, who's the Majesty's Trade Commissioner there. They're very helpful opening doors, uh, educating on open markets, access to, to people. Uh, that is a great attraction for the UK. And I think they, because it's now a, such a small market, uh, it, the UK reach, though, uh, is, is attractive. And the influence that the UK reach has uh, for such a small market, it's massive. And it's more than Germany, more than France, uh, more than Italy and Spain, more than Europe as, as a whole. And uh, that, that is attractive. And that's, uh, I think, that's why we, we did considering re-headquartering and we are still remaining in, in the UK. Okay. Uh, so, look, Nigel, we're kind of almost at uh, the end of uh, our allotted time, but I've got one final question to ask you, which is 
a question I put to everyone on the FN Tech podcast. And I haven't primed you, so uh, it'd be great to get the first thing that comes into your head. Uh, so what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? So uh, going back to sailing, if you've seen a, a film called The, the, uh, the Perfect Storm. Uh, I have. It was a terrible film with George Clooney, right? <laughs> so the uh, boat I worked on was uh, about uh, 200, 300 miles south of that uh, and uh, I remember waking up one uh, during the night and the, the water was just going far too fast past the hull just from sound right and I hope all hands so we all got on deck uh, to uh, find these massive 30 foot like swells uh, around the boat huge, huge biggest sea I've ever seen in my life and uh, and then the captain just orders us to get the damn sails down it's not like on a yacht where they just collapse. You've actually got to go out into the rigging and uh, and uh, go and take the sails down. Did, did that and uh, was out there in the the, the bow spit that comes right the way out over the sea, so you're going up and down 30 to 60 feet. Uh, and we, uh, Dave Hyatt, the first mate, and I both forgot to clip on. So it's all out there with no harnesses or anything else like that, uh, getting the sails down because we knew that the next day, if the, if the sails shred, we'd be stitching the damn things. And it was all done by hand on that boat. But that was uh, without thinking. And uh, it's probably because we were, we were massively trained because we have been working on that boat for uh, for a number of months anyway. And we were both sailing all our lives. We knew how to be stable on, 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 the, on the rigging. It's a, sort of a training kick term. But if you look at it on reflection, would I do that again? No. <laughs> <laughs> You find a dumb kid who's 18 to do it, like I was. Right, wow. So uh, you were kind of, you you survived the perfect storm, it seems. If, if that's not a good uh, training for for business or, or being a fintech founder, I'm I'm not sure what is. Uh, so uh, Nigel Verdon, uh, really great way to end, but appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to speak to me on the fintech podcast. So Nigel Verdon, co-founder and CEO of Rails Bank. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Entrepreneurs often describe multiple existential challenges hitting them at the same time as a perfect storm. But Nigel Verdon must surely be the only fintech founder to have gone through one in the literal sense. Of course, being able to keep calm in such trying circumstances can give you perspective when dealing with 30-foot swells like a financial crisis or a pandemic, enabling you to see through choppy seas to the destination that lies beyond. So thank you, Nigel Verdon, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Program. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We're going to take a break over August, but we're going to be back in September for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.